Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast Special Edition. This is the Indian Wells 2020 Cancellation Podcast. As most of you likely know, on Sunday night, word came down that Indian Wells 2020, the BNP Paribas Open, the fifth major, as it's called, was canceled on account of coronavirus and this global pandemic. Uh, we are all dealing with um, some more intensely than others. But we thought we would have a conversation about this pandemic and also the impact it might have on sports with a real expert. A lot of chatter out there. A lot of people who seem to have uh, read one story and have suddenly become experts. We're going to speak with a real expert. Uh, Celine Gounder is our guest. Full disclosure, Celine is a longtime friend. She is the wife of my friend, colleague, and uh, collaborator, sometimes Grant Wall. But more importantly, Celine is also a specialist in infectious diseases. She is a doctor. She also has a podcast titled Epidemic. She is speaking rationally with science, with data, and has been making the rounds. She was on CNN today. I feel like we need to timestamp this podcast just because this coronavirus story is so fast moving. We're recording this on Tuesday morning about 10 a.m. Eastern time, and Celine and I talk generally about um, infectious diseases, about the coronavirus, and a bit of talk about what went into this Indian Wells decision and where we all go from here. So without further ado, here is Dr. Celine Gounder. So let's timestamp this. It is Tuesday morning. This is a fast-moving story. Why don't we just sort of top-line thoughts. Uh, where are we on March 10th in the morning East Coast time? Where? What, what sort of – give us some geotag this. Where, where are we here? Well, we are about to see cases really increase in the coming week. Uh, and that's not necessarily because we're going to see a huge spike in transmission. What we're going to see is a huge spike in cases reported because testing is finally going to be widely available within the next week or so. Um, so you have the big commercial labs, LabCorp and Quest, that are rolling out their tests. That's, those, those private commercial labs are really much better integrated into routine healthcare than the public health labs, um, in part because they just serve different purposes. So you're going to see doctors on the front lines, whether it's from their private offices or from emergency rooms, from hospitals, testing more widely. And so you're going to see a lot more cases being reported. And I think the key thing there is to realize this is not something to freak out about. This is actually transmission that's probably been happening all along. Um, and it just is uncovering what's been there. I think the other thing you're going to start hearing is this expression, flattening the curve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that is, you know, do you have 100 cases in a day or do you have 100 cases in a month? And so even, yes, if 40 to 70 percent of the U.S. population is eventually infected, you want to slow the rate at which that happens, because otherwise you're going to get these huge surges in emergency rooms and other health facilities. And that's dangerous for everybody. So it's dangerous for healthcare workers working in those um, facilities. It, it makes it um, difficult to maintain good infection control so you don't have transmission within the facility. And then when you have, you know, that many people presenting for care, it's not just people for coronavirus that you, you know, who have coronavirus that you worry about. If you, for example, have a stroke and you come in and the facility is swamped with all kinds of different things, you know, including coronavirus, they're not going to be able to attend to your issue as quickly. And that can have real consequences. So to me, sort of the ramping up of testing and the, you know, being prepared for a surge in cases at 
at hospitals and other health facilities, that's really what we're thinking about right now. Um, I mean, from the from the macro to the micro, the, the big news in tennis circles was that Indian Wells, this big two-week extravaganza in Palm Springs, on Sunday night word came down that it was canceled. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously in, in tennis circles, it's, it's a big event and people were disappointed and people had bought tickets to cover the event and to go as fans. But I, I think symbolically it seemed to really echo. And this, this was on the scroll on CNN when I turned it on. Um, I, I don't want to sort of put you in the good decision, bad decision, binary world we live in, but this seemed pretty significant. And I wondered what you made of that announcement and what sort of is, is this going to be the new normal that these large, you know, the time of social distancing, uh, these, these large kinds of gatherings are going to get canceled similarly. Well, I I think you need to think about a few different factors. So one is the gathering happening in an area where there is community spread. So there are some areas where we still see no cases. There are some areas where you may have the sporadic case, maybe it's travel related. And then you have places like Seattle area now here in New York City, it looks like now, you know, uh, parts of California where you do have community spread. So if you have community spread, that's a much higher risk uh, proposition. Uh, than if you just have the, you know, couple sporadic cases. So I think right. that's one thing to consider. I think another thing to consider is, is this an indoor or outdoor event? Um, so no, it's not airborne, it's droplet borne, but certainly the ventilation that you get and, and sort of the air currents and the sun and all of those things actually really help in terms of reducing your risk. Um, so if it's an outdoor event, you know, I feel much better about it. Um, and then, then there's the question of how tightly people are packed together. Um, you know, in an ideal world with, with droplet-borne diseases, you really want to be two meters or so away from somebody because that, that's about as far as a droplet will go, and then it lands on surfaces. Right. Um, and, and so that's another issue. You know, how much are people touching surfaces? Are they all just standing? Are they touching, you know, seats or benches or, you know, that sort of thing? Uh, what is the access to bathrooms? What is the access to uh, being able to wash your hands? Uh, you know, that's another question. And then what's the, what are the demographics of the people attending the event? Mm-hmm. So is this, you know, a group of people that skews older or younger? You know, so you really, I, I don't think there is one blanket rule I could give for all of these events. I think you kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis and evaluate accordingly right and I, you know we, we should say for our audience for uh for this specific example it's an outdoor event and i i think tennis is unique or at least it's different from conventional sports soccer basketball baseball where fans are roaming around and you're not just standing in one venue next to other fans for the whole time i mean there's a lot of sort of lingering and you're going to practice courts and you're moving on the other hand to your point this Palm Springs area, just demographically, this has a very high cohort of uh, of, of elderly citizens. So that would be mm-hmm. uh, a factor militating um, in, in favor of the cancellation. What what do you think of this idea that I think we're going to see more and more of sports, of playing the games and having the matches and the competitions, but just doing so in empty arenas and stadiums with no, with no fans there and just making this a, a TV product, essentially? Well, I mean, you know, John, I'm I'm not a big sports fan, so I for me, there's you know, I'm I don't feel so sad about missing out on live sporting events and attending them, but um, you know, I can understand that that 
that's a big bummer for, for fans. Um, it certainly would reduce the risk. Now, that said, you do have, even in non-contact sports, you still have players uh, who are still having some degree of contact. Um, you know, probably tennis is one of the least so. Um, you know, so then the question is, how do you minimize the risk of transmission among the players? Right. Um, you know, and that, that's a tough one. You can't be Purelling, you know, all over and over as you're playing a basketball game or something like no, that. No, I mean, I mean that's where I was difficult. exactly. And there's, there's, there's one locker room and there's physical contact. And I, I wondered um, what you thought uh, about sort of co- competition in general in this, in this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would hate to say we should stop all sporting events. I, I think there's, especially in a time like this, there's real social and psychological uh, value to, to having sporting events, but how to do it safely? I don't know. I mean, I, I think part of the challenge with this is that you do have some asymptomatic cases. It's probably not from what we see, the major driver of transmission, but that's not to say there's no transmission that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer to that. You you mentioned uh, we we keep you're right. We keep hearing flattening the curve and, and breaking the cycle. What you know? I, I came into work today and there are signs to wash hands. Um, mm-hmm. And we're as as you say, we're told to. Uh, I mean, I took the subway. I don't know if you feel the same way but it's a strange experience and it does well no one's on the subway i took the subway yesterday there's no one there so like it's really actually easy to maintain that two meter distance from other people because there just aren't a lot of other people yeah but i'm looking at a subway pole like i've never looked at it before and (laughs) do we touch the doors and even when you i mean it sounds silly but even you know how many people have slid their cards through the uh through the dispenser um what i mean Beyond what's being told to us in placards and sent in emails, I mean, what what can we do to flatten this curve? Well, you know, it's really interesting. There was a study published out of Singapore, which, which, by the way, that country did an amazing job with their contact tracing and testing. I really wish we had been that proactive, um, but now, unfortunately, it's it's too late to do mm-hmm. what they did. But um, th- one of their one of the things that they looked at was in the hospital room of a patient who had coronavirus, what parts of the room were contaminated, and they did air sampling. They sampled all the surfaces. The air was completely negative. What they found was the surfaces, uh, including faucets, uh, counters doorknobs, like basically everything in the room was contaminated. Um, so that makes it really challenging. You know, my, my little sister, for example, is a principal of a charter school in Houston. And, you know, kids in high school, they don't sit at the same desk all day, right? Mm-hmm. They go from classroom to classroom. So do you need to be disinfecting the desks after every class, after every period? Um, I mean, that, that becomes difficult. Now, at least in the office setting, presumably you have your own desk and, and can sort of um, you know attend to that, but I think those kinds of surfaces, your keyboard. Like when I go to the hospital, I actually do wipe down my keyboard at the beginning and end of every day, and that's something I've done for a long time. Um, that's not new to this, but I think that kind of thing is is helpful. 
Um, and then really, especially kitchens and bathrooms, being very vigilant. Um, you know, I've heard some people say uh, cleaning every two weeks or every week. I mean, I don't think that's really enough, honestly. Um, and so that's going to be a big change in terms of how we maintain our spaces. What concerns you the most? Oof. Um, I am right now most worried about healthcare workers and our ability to handle the possible surge in cases and do so safely, do so safely for ourselves and do so safely for the patients that we're caring for. I mean, we've seen the pictures coming out of Italy, mm -hmm. previously to that out of China. We actually have fewer doctors per person and fewer hospital beds per person than Italy does. And we have the challenge on top of that of not ensuring universal health care in this country, which means some people will not present for care, will continue transmitting in the community because they can't afford care or because, you know, there's this public charge rule that discourages people who, um, depending on their immigration status, they, they're discouraged from accessing um, public services. Um, and, and that can really be an obstacle here. That could become a reservoir for transmission. So those are the kinds of things I'm really, I'm really worried about right now. We, we didn't need a pandemic to uh, hammer home this point. Not, not all healthcare systems are created equal. Um, what about the, what about the flip side? What uh, hope is probably not the right word, but are, are there sources of optimism? I mean, what do you look yeah. for as an encouraging sign that maybe this curve is flattening? Well, I don't know that I see sign of the curve flattening right now, but some of the things that I think are really cool that are happening. So, and this is where I went to med school, University of Washington. Um, they are collaborating, collaborating with the Gates Foundation um, to scale up testing and to do home-based testing, at least in the Seattle area. And I think that kind of thing could be really game-changing because then that allows you to funnel what, what may be some, you know, some worried well, some truly sick people, but offload them from the routine health services so they can keep doing their regular work. Um, you reduce the risk of infection in those facilities with all, pe all these people potentially having coronavirus presenting there, and you really improve access to testing. Um, and so, and, and they're not the only ones that are looking to do that, but I think, you know, that model uh, is really interesting. They're also planning to pair that with an online data collection system. You know, one of our challenges is that after the recession, since 2008, about 60,000 public health workers across the country have been let go. Uh, it's about a quarter of the public health workforce. And so what we call shoe leather epidemiology, literally people going from door to door mm -hmm. to collect this kind of data. We just don't have the staffing to do that. So having these online portals where people can log in and, and register that data, that's actually really important because it gives us a sense for, you know, who is at risk, where is this happening, under what circumstances. So that kind of thing I think is really exciting. You, you mentioned the word data. Um, I mean, I'm, yes. I, you know, I, again, n none of this should surprise us, um, but I'm, you, you sort of marvel, you get the feeling people, people read one BuzzFeed story and suddenly they're experts. I mean, the, the certitude which people are talking about this is really sort of alarming. Um, yeah. But you're you're an expert. I mean, using using data, can, can you hazard yeah. a guess when 
things will go back to some semblance of normal? I mean, is this a, a year from now? Are we still going to be carrying wipes and having canceled tennis tournaments and seeing uh, a market that's distressed? Or, or do you see a, a time frame for the curve we keep talking about? Well, I mean, I, I think it's the very um, far end. I would say when we have a vaccine, I think things will definitely settle down. But that's 18 that's months or so from, from yeah, now. Yeah. You know, and I don't I, I think that may, that's sort of the most pessimistic um, range. Um, but I, I really don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know about this virus still. So most coughs and colds and the flu do subside. They don't go away miraculously, but they do subside in the summer months and then rebound. You know, you have back to school and the weather getting cooler again in the fall. Will we see that with this coronavirus? I hope so, because that would actually help flatten the curve in a sense, um, slow the transmission over the next couple of months, and then give us a chance to uh, prepare a little bit better um, for, for a surge. Um, you know, but I, I just don't know. I mean, there's so much we still don't know as to how this is going to play out. And I think that's why that, that has many of us nervous. Right. No, and I, I mean, we're seeing, I mean, a lot of this, too, sort of bleeds into human behavior and behavioral economics, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you are as well. I'm blown away by the lack of respect for the unknown, that uh, pe- <laughs> people speaking as though there's precedent for this and as though, oh, isn't it so obvious, and assessing decisions that have never been made before. Let me ask you one more question um, just about the vaccine. Can, can mm-hmm. you explain why... Why we know when there will be a vaccine, but there isn't one now? I mean, when people say a year to 18 months for the vaccine, um, how, how do we know that? And if we can timestamp that, um, why can't we accelerate that? Well, so the reason we can estimate that is because we do have some candidate experimental vaccines um, that we can actually put into testing right away. So we're actually ahead of the game where um, if we had to start from scratch, it would be a very different story. So the the testing that's happening now are phase one um, clinical trials where you're really just making sure there are not any major um, side effects, adverse effects of the vaccine. And then once you do that with, say, I don't know, 50 or so people, then you do what's called a phase two where you're starting to collect data on how effective the vaccine is. So maybe you would be collecting data on antibody responses, not just safety. Um, And then you do a phase three study. So they are literally doing these studies at warp speed. um, And even then, 18 months. Um, So, you know, that's not the norm. It usually actually takes longer than that. This is great. I, I appreciate this. You have, uh, I'm sure you have other media appearances, more people to educate, data, facts, science, expertise. Um, it's good to talk to someone who, uh, who has that and is not just bloviating. So um, <laughs> thanks a lot. You're, uh, you're, you're doing good work, and um, I appreciate this. Oh, my pleasure. I owe you dinner. Um, all right. Thanks. Take care. <laughs> Keep your social distance. But uh, this, is, this is much appreciated. Of course. Of course. Take care. Bye, John. All right. Thanks to Dr. Celine Gounder for uh, for the expertise and the time. Um, I thought it would be helpful to have someone who knew what they were talking about and really could give us some some insight beyond uh, beyond the bullet points and the social media chatter, which is often inconsistent anyway. Um, Jamie, usually I thank you for 
you're producing sorcery today. I thank you simply for coming into the office, which uh, few of our colleagues seem to have done. Um, you and I are keeping our social distance. You're about two meters away. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I, I say this a, a third jokingly, um, but uh, no, thanks. Thanks for coming in. These are these are strange times. Very weird. As you guys said, the trains are empty. My trains were empty. Uh, I also looked at the subway pole very strangely this morning. Do I touch it? Do I not touch it? I don't have a seat, so what do I do? Um, you know, more so than than often. Uh, it's it is very weird, weird times. The the elbow bumps uh, I think are going <laughs> to permanently replace handshakes. I I do feel like we are learning an awful lot about our habits and how maybe unsanitary we've been in the past. Um, in as much as there might be. A nice takeaway thing, even in, you know, in tennis, we'll take this to tennis where maybe the notion of the ball kids carting around the player's towel with their various bodily fluids and bodily detritus might uh, be a tradition that's retired in the wake of this. That might be nice. But uh, I mean, let's talk Indian Wells first. I don't don't know. I don't want to dramatize this, but where were you when you heard the news (laughs) that Indian Wells 2020 was canceled? I mean, what, what was your response to that announcement? Uh, yeah, I was pretty shocked, honestly. It was uh, I was with a group of people who were split on how much of a big deal this was. You know, people who had half heard of Indian Wells and said, yeah, isn't that like a big tournament? You know, isn't that a big tennis tournament? And half people were like, oh, I don't know what that is. This doesn't sound that important. Uh, you know, it's just another tournament they're canceling, right? So uh, I think for me, obviously, knowing how big the tournament is and uh, everything else in terms of tennis, I was actually pretty shocked. But then, um, you know, given I think the the number that there was only one case mm-hmm. in the area was sort of the thing that was surprising for most people. Celine talked about it that the idea that the population and the place where this event was going to occur, the demographic of that population was seems to be the reason why they're being so cautious and why that it's decided to do this but i think the timing was the most surprising i mean it was late yeah. late sunday that, night yeah right. i mean it was it was very late um you know we were texting and i was kind of shocked that at that point you're usually on a plane already out there so um also surprised to see you here um <laughs> no it was uh it was very strange the players had arrived I and mean, players right. you know, naomi osaka players were posting their social media video everybody was waiting for the quali draw to come out we knew who the wild cards were uh, you know, if they're canceling this event, they're probably not telling Tennis Sandgren and Mitch Kruger and Jack Sock and the other wildcard recipients, hey, come and we've got a spot in the main draw for you. I heard there was mounting pressure from the players, but I also heard, and this is something that Celine didn't mention per se, but I think it hovers around this, is there is a, a liability issue. And if, heaven forbid, you got sick and could trace it to this event, and then you could say, hey, listen, they canceled South by Southwest, they had warning signs that somehow there was negligence in holding this event, um, then we're moving into a, a complete... And I'm not even talking about a player. I'm talking about a, a common fan gets coronavirus and says, I went to this event and they should have known better and they were negligent staging the event. Um, then the risk-reward calculus uh, has, has another factor to add to it. But I, I do think that tennis is in a strange spot in a lot of respects. I mean, on the one hand, it's a global sport. Right. Players are flying everywhere you have a lot of fan interaction i mean you think about going to a tennis event and you see fans what's first thing to do even on the big courts when the players are done what do they do they run over they sign autographs they sign the camera they're fans that shake their hands they go to the practice courts that's to say nothing of 
the lesser known players who have all sorts of fan interactions, who are walking across the grounds and they're staying at hotels and everyone's in the same locker room. The flip side of that, um, and I think I brought this up with Celine, is that the experience, A, for the most part, is outdoors. And B, you're not just standing in a packed state. You're not going to Madison Square Garden and sitting in your section cheering for the Knicks for two and a half hours. No, you're jumping you around. Do, you do have the social distance, right? I mean, you are jumping around and, and strolling and you're outdoors. And a lot of times you're not necessarily near a, a lot of other fans at a tennis event. Yeah, so, but I would say that you are you are walking around. There's a lot of um, the opposite of, of Madison Square Garden is that you're you're probably not staying in your seat one place one time i mean you're there's lots of other activities and, yeah, right, and things right, going right. on and um to your point the players aren't usually uh you know especially maybe maybe the the bigger players but it's not like uh msg where players are walking through a tunnel and you don't even see them i mean you could have a player come off a court and walk right past you at a tennis tournament and you know, oh, selfies by the dozen, and it, Indian Wells especially has a whole area where players, right when they come out, there's a barricade and fans stand there with their phones and their pens and their programs, and it's very, very interactive with the athletes. Um, I, I think now we're going to see, you know, right now it's Tuesday morning. Miami seems to be standing firm. I've heard two very different things. I mean, I've heard they're really trying to resist and do everything possible to uh, – keep staging this event and they really want to make sure this 2020 Miami open goes off. And if they have to make some accommodations, they'll do so. Um, but I also see some of the recommendations coming out of South Florida and you talk about an older demographic. Um, I, I think they're going to have a, a tough decision to make. And then as you say, we, you, you mentioned this, I think before we started recording that we go to, we go to the European clay court swing, right. and as we record this, Italy's basically on a nationwide quarantine. So right. it's, it's a little hard to imagine eight weeks from now, seven weeks from now. Everyone's heading out to Rome. Everyone's going to Rome for, for a tennis event. I, I do think that, again, it's not quite analogous to other sports where you have these huge broadcast deals. Um, but I do think maybe we're moving into a world where you just play these matches without fans in the stands. You think that that's what's going to happen with Miami Open? I I think Miami's a little different, and I think again some of this is, I mean it's you know it's, it's interesting. I mean I think Miami Open there there are a lot of factors here. One of them it's a, it's a huge football stadium. I think they really want to accommodate uh, the players and their sponsors and the fans. They really want. I've heard they really want to pull this off no matter what. The um, counties around and Miami itself have more confirmed cases mm -hmm. than. The Indian Wells, right? So that's the other. Factor. Indian Wells had one case, I think. right? But um, yeah, exactly. And I think that for an event like the French Open, though, where so much of the revenues are tied into these media deals, mm -hmm. I think for the majors especially, that makes more sense to me to play the matches and have it as a TV product, even if you're having empty stands. And you know, I mean, the, the truth is, t tennis has done this before. There have been Davis Cup ties that have been played in in empty arenas, and I think we're going to see this more and more. We're going to see this in, in European soccer. We're talking about doing this right now with the NCAA basketball tournament. It's a TV product. Um, people are saying, you know, a few years from now, sports can be played on sound stages anyway. We all know that the fans going through the turnstiles are becoming less and less relevant to the bottom line. When, you know, Oklahoma plays Syracuse in Anaheim during the NCAA tournament, 
the fans aren't really relevant. There isn't the home court advantage that you have in, say, you know, the the NFL playoffs. Right. And tennis doesn't. And tennis has the same thing. I think we're going to see events played, and maybe they'll have to have a reduction in prize money. Maybe they'll have to figure out a way to have more replay officials. I mean, I, I think they're going to have to be some tweaks. But I think it's entirely conceivable that you could play big tennis tournaments with no fans coming through the turnstiles and just have it as, as a TV proposition. I'd argue, though, that even as a TV product, the fans create an atmosphere. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I always say it uh, as a very sad Jets fan for football uh, that – you know, when you watch a Jets game, sometimes the fans are just not into it as compared when you watch other teams. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the the whole game kind of seems like it's just kind of boring and it's slow and everyone hates the team and we're just going to lose. Right. And so that feeling carries through the TV, I think, when I watch it. And so in, in a tennis match, I mean, we talk about it all the time. You know, you've got people up in the rafters at, at matches. Crazy. And then, you know, all of the. The courtside seats, it looks like no one's watching the match. Uh, and I, I would argue that we've had um, some pretty big finals with, with players like Federer and Nadal where we've really felt a split, and that's really swayed the how the match has gone. So, I mean, are they going to have to pipe in some sort of crowd noise <laughs> and applause to make the TV product feel authentic? You know the Knicks actually do that, by the way. Um, I, I think there's some – I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's there's no question that the fans and the response, it's all of what gives sports context and texture and, and richness. I do think if it's preferable, it's preferable to not playing. I mean, I, I still think if, if the choice is no Wimbledon or Wimbledon with only 500 fans ringing the lower levels, I still would rather have matches go on. I think there are tricks you can do with the TV coverage. I think you can move the cameras. And I think during the NCAA basketball games, you'll see this, that you – we'll rarely see that there are huge pastures of empty seats in a lot of these early round games. And I think that's something that tennis can work on. Um, but no, I mean, it's, this is really just strange times. And again, one of my sort of frustrations with this is how this is completely uncharted territory and people speaking with sort of dogmatically, this is stupid. This is smart. I mean, we, Everything is just you're, you're really trying to use whatever little information we have and what little data we have and make decisions. But I, I don't think anyone can speak with a lot of certitude here just because there's no comparison. I mean, we're talking about Spanish flu and we're talking of you know, we're likening this to what happened in 1919. And even, even the Black Death, as crazy as that sounds, that's where we are. So I, I think this is all sort of. Take, take what information you have and make decisions, but I, I don't think – I think we need a wide berth to assess those decisions because basically this is unprecedented territory here. For sure. Sticking on that, the, the TV angle, one more question for you. Being as you are uh, on the TV, we see you at the mm-hmm. tournaments, uh, and you have the job sometimes to interview the players after the match, which is sometimes televised, sometimes not, right? Those things are are packaged up differently. Mm -hmm. But I think about the on-court interview right after the match is over. You know, they they throw some handsome tennis balls over, so they, you know, and that is mostly um, a time where you see players thanking the fans, you know, you helped me through, and I really appreciate the support, and I just love being here in Indian Wells. This place feels like home. I mean, we can can write the script for those post-match interviews. 
what is that going to be like? I mean, if you're, <laughs> yeah, you're a right. tennis channel or ESPN and you're broadcasting this, how are you, you know, how are you walking out there and having somebody interview a player with an op- empty stadium that's wide open and you just won a 6-1-6-1 match? I, I don't know. It's, I just want to thank the – oh. <laughs> um, I'll where tell are you, you tossing uh, those tennis balls? Someone made a really interesting point to me, too. They said, what do you think this does also – yeah, exactly. I'm going to hit six balls into the stands, <laughs> and uh, there's one usher that can have all six. Um no, someone else made a really interesting point to me. They said, imagine the interaction between the athletes. And if you and You're I are... almost forced to, right? Yeah, I mean, if this is... I mean, pick, pick your players. If this is, uh, you know, Federer Nadal and there are no fans in the stands <laughs> and they're almost sort of calling their own lines and they're... I mean, who knows if they'll be ball kids, but it's essentially going to feel like a social match between the athletes and you know they can walk on the court at the same time because they don't have to wait for the applause for one to swell up and then die down i, I think it's really going to be an interesting sort of competitive environment but again there, there is some history for this i mean there have been syria soccer football games right, that right, played right. in in empty arenas when there have been fear of riots there's been davis cup tennis when there were i, I think there was a, a sweden israel davis cup tie when there were some threats against the Israeli team that they played in a secured and open, I mean, a vacant uh, arena. So I I do think there is some precedent here. And um, I I think one thing that's really struck me, too, is that, and I I mentioned this um, on Tennis Channel the other night, a lot of times you have these tragedies, um, and it's JFK being shot and then the NFL games coming that Sunday. And you had, after 9-11, everyone talks about the the Yankees, the the following Yankees game um, after 9-11. And Drew Brees and Hurricane Katrina. Sports have had, after these tragedies, this real ability to unify and unite and and bind people. In this case, sports have the complete opposite effect. That all these sporting events that usually bring people together and heal and show some common values and some shared sense of mores... It's completely the opposite. Now, now sports are going to exacerbate the problem. Sports are going to make things worse. Right. So I think sports' role in this, this coronavirus is very peculiar, that usually we call upon sports to bring us together. Now it's the bringing together that is only going to make things worse. So I think we're in store in a lot of ways. I mean, we see this in the financial markets. We see this in our human interactions. You mentioned the, the subways. Even, I mean, we joked about it, but, you know, I wiped down this desk. I mean, even our, our personal individual behavior is going to change. I mean, this is really strange times, and sports are obviously just one small sliver of this. But I do think we're going to have to adjust, hopefully in the short term, but I think we're really going to have to adjust to uh, a different experience as athletes, as fans, and as media. And, again, my hope at this point is simply that competition persists and we're going to look back at the time the French Open was played in front of 500 fans without ball kids, but you think there this, was a French Open. That's that's my hope right now. You think it will extend to the French Open that far? I mean, I know that uh, Celine mentioned that there is, you know, a, a percentage, a chance that things do get better as the weather gets warmer. Uh, and so, you know, it doesn't completely eradicate everything, but things do get better. Do you think that... I think the lead-ups, I mean, we talk about Rome being in early May, and Italy's on lockdown at this point until April 3rd. Who knows if that continues after that? I mean, are you 
what do you do as a player even? I mean, how are you structuring your schedule? I think somebody, um, I forget who it was. I saw somebody reply to a tweet uh, that, you know, everyone is going to be on the Roger Federer schedule of tennis now uh, with, yeah, with right, everything exactly. happening. But right. how do you structure your schedule when you're not sure if things are going to be canceled? Like, do you, do you just go home? I mean, a lot of times these tennis players don't have a home base or their home base might be in – a country right. that is well, they're quarantined now. I mean, I you know, I I had you you cannot go to Israel, for example, right now. Right. There there is a quarantine uh, for any international travel. So yeah, a lot of players they may not even be able to go. I mean, I don't I don't know if you can you fly into China right now. Um, I I, I do sure. not know. I don't. I I know that uh, United, just for instance, I was just flying, so I know this that they sent an email saying that flights to Italy. China, uh, Japan, and and a few other countries, they were just not yeah, exactly. operating. So, um, and that's what's so crazy about it. I mean, I, w- I was in Japan two weeks ago, and, you know, some people at the airport had masks, but it wasn't, you know, there, there was no thought of really canceling the trip or anything like that. That was, that was two weeks ago. So this is moving fast. This is a, uh, a, a fluid story, as we say. So to, to the point about tennis, I don't know. I mean, I, f- I right. feel like... Um, it's we have a limited amount of data and it would be awesome if the first week of april we all said Woo, that was uh that was a crazy month let's get on with our lives but given the math i'm not sure anything's going to abate anytime soon so it's um for for everyone and i i think you're right i mean i think tennis is a as a global sport and as a sport made up of individual actors and individual contractors and yes there are two tours but the truth is everyone has their own small business and the Lakers can say, Hey, the team bus is coming in here and we're the league is going to offer a mandate. But Fabio Fonini's calculus right now is very different from John Isner's and it's sort of every, every player for themselves. And right now I think there are a lot of players that are still practicing in Indian Wells and wondering if Miami is the next stop or if they need to completely reassess. So it's right. it's deeply unfortunate. And again, I, I can't stress this enough. I just, deeply unknown. I mean, re- respect for the unknown, I think, is critical here because no one knows anything. So we all need to be nimble. I, I think the one other thing, now that I'm thinking about all this even more, with tennis, that makes this so interesting, and we've talked about this before, is that this is not like... I don't know. The NBA cancels some games, right? The, the Everyone kind of goes home, and, and that's it. With tennis, if you're whatever, whoever you are, if you're the 100th ranked player or the number one player, you're not making your money that week, mm-hmm. right? You're not competing for that prize money that you've probably penciled in somehow to your overall year yearly taken. So, and, and related to that, ranking points are going to just drop off as normal. You know, the, as the calendar moves, the ranking points will drop off and then things will change. So there's a lot of earning potential here in, in many different ways that's just kind of going away. And that's um, kind of interesting if you're a player that's in the middle ground. You know, I'm for right. some the Rafael Nadal's and Djokovic's of the world have less no, to worry it's a about. Great point. But great point. It's, uh, it's interesting. No, and, and you, you know, the, the number 50 ranked player has a coach. Well, first round loser money in Indian Wells was, I think, $18,000. So. You're taking a lot of income off the table. You're right. They're not guaranteed contracts. And there is this whole tennis ecosystem. How do you pay your coach if you're not playing matches? Right. So it's, um, like I say, it's 
strange, strange days. It and uh, we will see when we can get back to normal. Um, funny as it sounds, I, I think we should get back to normal next week and maybe try and uh, resume a conventional tennis podcast. But uh, for now, that will do it. Um, this is the Indian Wells Cancellation Global Pandemic Podcast. Man, it would be nice to talk about uh, Heather Watson and... We've had a lot of emergency podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Recently. Enough with the bushfires. Uh, re- retirements are part of life. We can live with those. But um, yeah, the, I, I wrote a piece for Tennis Channel. This is the year, and here it is March 10th. We can already make this declaration. This is the year when uh, tennis intersects with the real world. So um, we, we talked about the possibility of canceling the first major of the year. Um, you could have gotten a lot of odds if you said we might be having that same conversation <laughs> about the second major of the year. But here we are. Um, all right. That'll do it, Jamie. Thanks. Uh, double thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Um, I hope next week it's under uh, more subdued and conventional circumstances. Let's get out of this room. Let's Take get out of here. Off. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> we're taking headphones off. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe, leave a review, send a guest suggestion. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. And uh, seriously, stay safe, wash your hands, and uh, we'll have another guest next week. Mm-hmm.